now we're ready to uh, discuss the self, or me, in relation to uh, what we've been discussing. We've seen that uh, uh, all the various components of uh, karmic cause and effect, what's going on during an action, what's going on at, uh, after the action, the aftermath, and what's going on with the uh, result, that all of the components of uh, all of these can be uh, classified under the five aggregates. And the aggregates are the aggregate factors, that means aggregate means composite, many, many of them, uh, factors which make up each moment of our experience. And there is me as part of that uh, continuum of the five aggregates, and it is classified uh, in the aggregate of other affecting variables. It's not separate from the five aggregates, it's part of the five aggregates. But although it is part of, the, of one of the aggregates, it is a synthesis of the continuum of all the aggregates, in a sense, many different types of synthesis. And we have seen that uh, there are many types of non-static imputations that are not a form of physical phenomenon or a way of being aware of something, but they change from moment to moment, like age, time, speed, these sort of things. And from uh, uh, a uh, doing the Glupa explanation of this, from a Sautranska point of view, these are, some, these are objective things. We can see them, we can know them. We can see, for example, a person. We don't just see colored shapes or pixels. We see a person. All right. So there's a big difference between what I call imputation, mental label, and designation, although all three are uh, the same word in Tibetan. And since there can be an awful lot of confusion, uh, if we don't make this differentiation, let me just explain it briefly. I use imputation for these non-static phenomena. They're objective and they can be known non-conceptually. You can see a person, you can uh, uh, see that an object has a certain speed, these sort of things. We can hear a sentence. You ever think about that? You only hear one tiny little syllable of a sound at a time. We don't hear the whole sentence in one instant simultaneously. Nevertheless, it would be nonsense to say that you don't hear the sentence. We don't hear what people are saying. That is objective, can be known hearing, non-conceptually. Whether somebody hears it or not, it doesn't matter. You're saying a sentence. Whether somebody thinks, oh, there's a person or not, we're a person. It's objective. Doesn't matter if anybody sees it or knows it or anything like that. Objective reality. Okay? Now, when we talk about mental labeling or mental labels, and mental labels has to do with uh, categories and designation has to do with words. And those are optional. 
They are only known conceptually, not non-conceptually. Whether anybody sees us, whether anybody thinks of us, doesn't matter, we're still a person. But a concept, a category, only occurs when somebody thinks it. The same as, you know, the name of something or the word for something. Only, you know, occurs when you're actually thinking it, using it. So, mental label, so both of these are involved with conceptual cognition. Conceptual cognition is through the medium of a category. Non-conceptual has no category. A category is like a mental box. So I uh, uh, have a uh, category of uh, dog, for example. And so any animal that has certain characteristics, I perceive it as it fits into this category of a dog. Well, you don't have to have a word associated with it. Dogs don't have words associated with that category. But as a human, I have a word that's associated with that category. I call it dog. You call it something else in, in Russian. That's conceptual. It has to do with what category it fits in. Objectively, it is a dog. It's not a cat. But how do I perceive it? How do I know that it's a dog? I fit it into the category of dog. That's conceptual. So when I see that thing over there with four legs, it's not a nothing, it's not a chair, it's a dog, isn't it? So I'm seeing a dog. Whether I know that it's a dog or not doesn't matter. It's still a dog. It's not a chair and it's not nothing. Right, that's conventional reality, common sense reality. Right, now, to know that it's a dog, I have to fit it into the category. That's mental labeling. And to know what it's called, that's a designation. That's with a word on the category and through the category on that animal. So there are object categories like dog, and there are also what's called audio categories. So uh, when somebody says the word, you know, makes a sound, dog, it doesn't matter what uh, volume it is, what kind of voice it is, uh, how it's pronounced. I can understand it as fitting into the audio category of saying the same word. Otherwise, we can't understand language. And then we associate a meaning category with the audio category. That's how language works. It's conceptual. It's the same thing with how can you possibly read a written word. The word dog. It doesn't matter what font it's in, what size font, what color, what handwriting. We fit them all into the category of all being the word dog. And then we assign, uh, assign to it a meaning category. Hmm. So the same thing with me or the self. It's an imputation. You have to differentiate the imputation from the mental label me and the word me or your own name. They're quite different types of phenomena. So a very interesting experiment. 
is to lay out a series of photos of yourself spanning uh, various phases of your life, starting with when you were an infant all the way up till now. Who are these photographs of? They're all me. That's an imputation on this uh, photograph. It's objectively me, not somebody else, and not nobody. How do I know that they're all me? I have this conceptual category, me, and I fit all of these into that category. They're all me. They all fit into that box of me, not you. And I happen to know my name, so I can give it a name. But if it's a series of photos of uh, uh, somebody else, I can recognize all of them, put them all into the category of being the same person, but I might not know their name. So the name is optional. So that's something that really is very fundamental and very, very important to understand the distinction that uh, I make by using these three terms, although, as I say, it's all the same word in Tibetan because they share a certain characteristic, the three, but we don't have to get into that. Imputation, mental label, and designation. Nevertheless, they are quite distinct items. So what, what now the, the, you have to look at the characteristics of the self. There is the uh, self that is not to be re refuted, so the conventional self. And then there's the false self, the self to be refuted. The one that, uh, uh, it, appear, it seems like that, you know, it feels like I'm this kind of uh, false self, some sort of solid thing, isolated from everybody else and so on. But uh, that doesn't correspond to, to anything, to reality. There's a total absence of anything that it corresponds to. That's called voidness. Total absence. Uh, do you have here at uh, Christmas time people that dress like Santa Claus or Father Christmas? Uh, yes, we do. So, it's a good example. Here's a person. They are dressed like Santa Claus. They look like Santa Claus, but they're not really Santa Claus, because there is no such thing as Santa Claus. But nevertheless, they still are a person. They're a person who looks like Santa Claus. It looks like something which is impossible. It doesn't correspond to reality. That's the difference between the conventional self, that's the person who looks like Santa Claus, and the false self, that is actually is Santa Claus. So, you know, there's the conventional me that experiences karma, and then there's the false me that is, you know, this horrible person, you know, that's to blame and guilty and so on. That's right. Santa Claus. Right? The conventional me is the one that's responsible, has to deal with, you know, what, what is going on in their behavior. Santa Claus, you know, that horrible one, is the one that's guilty. There's nobody that's guilty. Because the one that you imagine is guilty doesn't correspond to reality. Someone that, you know, is the cause of everything that happens, you know, in the universe, the sole cause. My team lost the football team, football game because I was there. So, just as the, so the self is an imputation on the five aggregates, the continuity of the five aggregates. The five aggregates then are the base, known as the basis of imputation. So that basis the five aggregates are not static. They change from moment to moment. They're not monolithic. 
They're made up of many, many changing parts, and they can't exist independently of being the body, mind, etc., of a person. It's not just a body, it's a body of a person. It's not just a mind, it's a mind of a person. It can't just be body or mind. It can't exist independently. It could be dead. It's still a human body, body of a person, not a body of water. So, like that, the self has the same characteristics as the aggregates because it's imputed on it. And I have to correct my language. It's not that it is imputed on it by somebody. It's an imputation on it. It's a fact about it. It's not that somebody has to impute it in order to make it a person. So like the aggregates that are non-static, they're changing all the time. The self is changing all the time. If it were not changing all the time, it couldn't be affected by anything. It wouldn't be able to do anything. I couldn't create karma. I couldn't you know, experience anything. I couldn't do anything. I wouldn't be affected by anything if I were, if I didn't change from moment to moment. And uh, if the self were partless, you know, the aggregates have parts, so, if the, so it's not partless. So if the self were partless, then you couldn't have two distinct aspects of the me that commits the action and the me that experiences the results. Those are parts over time. The Can self has parts, not a monolith. And if a self were independent and could exist separately by itself, separate from a body and a mind, then it, could, then it should be able to do things without a body. It should be able to think things without a mind. And the body could do things with intention without anybody doing it. We're not talking about the body rotting when you're dead, but uh, doing something with intention. It couldn't do that. I mean, it should, if, the, if the self could be independent of a body, the body should be able to do things with intention by itself. It doesn't. So there's no static, heartless, independent, separable, that can be separated from the aggregate self, that's living inside the body and mind and operating it as its possession. Now, that's what I've been calling a solid me. It's just easy way of saying it. You know, a solid thing, it never changes, and it doesn't have any parts, it's just one solid thing, and it's independent, and it comes into the body and mind, and it operates it like a machine to do things, to commit karmic actions, and inside this, you know, horrible house of the body and mind, it experiences the results. That's nonsense, that doesn't correspond to reality. But that's what it feels like. That's, you know, me, me as the, the, the thing inside my head that's talking. It's the author of the voice that goes on in my mind. Ooh, you know, that shouldn't happen to me. That's not fair. You know, complains, all these sort of things. I'm no good. So the total absence of anything that corresponds to this misconception of a static, partless, independent self. That total absence is what's known as the coarse selflessness of a person or coarse identitylessness of a person.
First level, avoidness, basically, of the yeah. person. So first we have to understand, you know, all the components of karma. So we deconstruct that and, you know, the aftermath and the results. And we deconstruct, you know, the, our moments of experience into the five aggregates. We fit it together. And then we have to deconstruct the me. That's the imputation on all of this. So we've deconstructed this solid me. And we understand that it is an imputation which is non-static, has parts, and the imputation can't exist separately from the basis of imputation. Can't exist separately from a body, mind, and emotions, etc. So that's our first level, you know, the grossest level of understanding the uh, conventional me as an imputation. What, it, what it actually does it mean as an imputation? Non-static imputation. Solid deconstructed it a little bit. So then, the next level that we have to deconstruct is uh, we imagine, and it feels like, the self can be known all on its own, self-sufficiently knowable, without knowing some of the aggregates on which it is the basis of imputation at the same time. So if a person could be known just by itself, you know, me as being bad and to blame and guilty, and you could just know me like that, then uh, uh, anybody who sees me would be able to know me as being bad and guilty without even knowing what I did. They should be able to know that independently of anything that the me is an imputation on. And that's clearly absurd, isn't it? You can only know that I, you know, have acted in this way and am experiencing this result and so on by also knowing what I did. So it's not that me, that I am guilty, I am to blame. It's all in relation to what I did. Isn't it? So, you apply this. I mean, this is all meant to be applied. So you think, okay, I killed a lot of flies and mosquitoes when I was younger. By the way, I did when I was a child. But I'm not a static, fixed phenomenon. I can change. I can change my behavior. If I were static, I could never change my behavior. And if I were static, I would be unaffected by what I did. So I'm not. And I'm not partless. I mean, it isn't that the only thing that I ever did was kill flies. I did many other things. I did some nice things. I, lots of things. There are many, many parts to me. Not just that one part, partless, you know, killer of flies. <laughs> Murderer of flies. Right, and it's not as though, you know, there was a me that came in to my body and, you know, it was independent and now is coming into the body and is using the body as a fly swatter to, to kill flies. That's also silly, right? I couldn't kill flies as something independently existent without the body. The body is killing, you know, is smacking the flies. So the self doesn't exist independently of the body. 
and it's not coming in and using the body, like, you know, this dualistic, you know, my arm is a fly swatter. And I can't be known, you know, but to myself as, you know, guilty, horrible person independently of what I did, kill flies. And of course, I did other things as well, but I mean, that whole idea that uh, I can be known self-sufficiently by myself, independent of, of knowing anything else, and have that um, characteristic of being guilty. That doesn't work, does it? So the absence of a self-sufficiently knowable me is the subtle selflessness of a person, or the subtle identitylessness of a person. There's no such thing. So this whole idea that I'm some horrible, guilty, you know, person. When you, read this, when you deconstruct it, it's not referring to, you know, anything real. That, you know, like that all the time and never does anything else. And, you know, anybody who sees them knows that you're a guilty person. Like that. And then the next level is you start to think, well, what, what's a guilty person? Guilty person is a category designated by the words guilty person. And I can only be established as a guilty person in terms of that concept, category, and word, the mental label. I'm a person, yeah, that's objective, imputation, all these changing moments, 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 all the parts changing, 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 you know, karmic causes, aftermath, karmic results, right? So I'm responsible, I have to deal with this, you know, with what I've done and try to change because I'm non-static, so I can change, I can regret, I can change my behavior, you know, all these sort of things. But, you know, there is this concept, this category of guilty person and this is convention, and uh, there are, uh, what should we say, word that's associated with that. So I am established as a guilty person, a bad person, only in terms of what that concept and word refers to on the basis of certain behavior. So, there's a convention that society, a certain society accepts. That convention is guilty person. And, you know, well, what's a guilty person? Somebody that, you know, well, what a, that concept of guilty person refers to on the basis of certain behavior. There's nothing truly established as a guilty person independently of a concept of a guilty person. You know, in a, uh, if I were established from my own side as a guilty person, then anybody who sees me, including the dog, including uh, someone from a society that uh, thinks there's nothing wrong with killing flies, in fact, it's a great thing to do, wouldn't see me as a guilty person. I mean, if I were, I'm sorry, if I were established from my side as the guilty person, then anybody, even without that concept, you know, I, I would be a guilty person. 
that I'm only a guilty person in relation to that concept, what that concept refers to. Give other examples, maybe make it a little bit easier. Uh, as I mentioned, I went to the Bolshoi Ballet last night. So there were a lot of people in strange clothes that were jumping up and down and turning round and round on the stage. That's what I saw. What establishes that as being a ballet? If I have a concept of a ballet, and the word ballet, it's in relation to that, that, that this is a ballet. Otherwise, it's just people jumping around on the stage. How nice. Why are they jumping? <laughs> now, conventionally, it is a ballet. Everybody that comes from a society that accepts ballets, that there is such a thing as ballets, would agree that's a ballet. That's not a football match. But it's only, you can only establish or prove or demonstrate that it is a ballet in relation to the concept, the mental label, the category of ballet, and the designation of it with the word ballet. But uh, ballet as an imputation, you know, that's what it, you know, it's like uh, a synthesis of the whole thing. Synthesis of, uh, you know, what is a life? A life is a synthesis of uh, all these moments. It is a life. Whether you call it a life or not, that's conceptual. It's a life. It is a ballet, conventionally. But there's a difference. It's very subtle. So what we understand, then, is that each moment seems like a solid thing doesn't it? But it's made up of all these different parts that we can classify in terms of the five aggregates and within the five aggregates, the karmic factors, and me as part of the whole thing. But none of these exist like a ping pong ball. You know, it's not like a collection of ping pong balls. You know, they're all separate and individual, you know, solid. That's not what is making up each moment. Is it? Not like that. Conceptually, we can isolate each of these parts. We can isolate from this, conceptually, the intention, the, mo the emotion, the urge, me. And what are these? They are what the concept refers to. But actually, how we experience it, we experience it as a whole, don't we? So although we can conceptually isolate all these things in order to be able to understand, analyze, see what is the problem, etc., that uh, uh, doesn't mean that each of these things exist isolated from each other. It's a whole network of everything interacting. So conventionally, they do occur. But to work with it, you know, they're established by conceptually isolating them. So we have then this big difference between a false me, solid, you know, solid ping pong ball in there that is to blame and guilty, independent, independent of, of anything that you did or being able to change or anything like that. 
So that's false. It doesn't correspond to reality. So who's to blame? Nobody's to blame. But, because the whole concept of the, the me that could be blamed, and the concept of blame is false. Nevertheless, conventional me is the one that's responsible. Conventional me is the imputation on all the various things that uh, uh, we did. It's experienced as part of the five aggregates and is uh, the one that experiences the results and is you know, responsible for changing. So that's a big difference. You know, responsibility is based on the actual conventional me with an understanding of how it ex exists and all the things that it's an imputation on. Whereas the me that's guilty and to blame, that's based on this idea of the false me. So the more we familiarize ourselves with uh, this whole deconstruction process, and uh, uh, the more that we repeat it, become more and more familiar with it, then we'll be able to apply it when we start to feel I'm guilty, I'm no good, I'm to blame, poor me, why has this happened to me, me, me? All this, you know, this whole train of uh, very unhappy thinking will be able to say, well, this is based on nonsense. And in that way, uh, the more that we can focus on uh, the fact that this is nonsense, doesn't correspond to reality, we break the inertia of that way of thinking, that negative way of thinking. And so even if we start thinking negatively like that again, the energy behind it, that urge that's behind it will be weaker. The urge to think like that. But slowly, slowly, it gets weaker and weaker and you get rid of it. So that brings us exactly to five o'clock, so the end of our uh, session, our weekend. So we end with the dedication. We think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this may go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for everyone to attain the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of us all. Okay, thank you very much.